Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday is the second Sunday after the Epiphany, and our text will be the Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, the Epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and the Gospel from John chapter 1, verse 29 through verse 42a, the first part of that last verse. So we begin with the Old Testament text, which is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7, the prophet Isaiah writing in the 700s B.C., and this ends up being another one of his servant songs. The servant songs, or even, you might even say the suffering servant, these songs are prophecies about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there are, again, four of them. We talked about this with the baptism of our Lord Sunday because we had the first of the four servant songs then, which was Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. We have this one today, chapter 49. Some argue it goes all the way through verse 13 for the song. And then chapter 50, verses 4 through 11 is the third song. We will have that together on Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, whichever word you want to use for it. And then Isaiah 52 verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12, is the fourth and final of the servant songs, and you'll find that one this year on Good Friday in our churches. So year A actually ends up with all four of the servant songs of Isaiah within the first, what would that be, five months or so, so the first half of the year. So let's go ahead and look at this servant song and see how it points us to Jesus Christ. I suppose if you wanted to, you could try to take it in the context of the prophet Isaiah, what God has given him to do, but it's just going to fall short. There are just things in this text that, again, are going to point us to Jesus in about as clear a manner as we could hope for. It's all one text in ESV, so here we go. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh, and my recompense with my God. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Listen to me, O coastlands, is how it starts. 
The coastlands are the lands all around the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is pressed right up against it. It is the western border of the people of God, their territory. And so those western cities, which then would have ports, which would have ships, and the ships could then take the message across the sea to other peoples as well. To the ends of the earth, is a phrase that will show up later here. Give attention, you peoples from afar, because, again, that's where the ships will take it. Listen to the message of the Messiah here in chapter 49. Yahweh called me from the womb. So from the womb already, the Messiah is set apart. Unique, distinct, separate from the rest of creation to do what he's been sent to do, called. Given a task. A task to redeem word we see down in verse 7, to be light for the nations, verse 6, from the body of my mother he named my name. We think of the angel that comes and visits both Mary and Joseph in Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts, and we think of how God already at that point instructed this young couple to name him Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From the body of my mother he named my name. Typically, the name is given on the eighth day at the time of circumcision, and in reality they do that as well, but this name was picked long before. This name was known many months before Jesus was born because this thing comes from God. And the name Jesus is a confession of our faith. It means he saves. It comes from the Hebrew word, the verb, to save. It is the third person, masculine, singular. He saves. Yeshua, Joshua, which transliterates into Greek as Jesus, well, Jesus, which translates into English as Jesus. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. A powerful phrase here, and one that we see in the New Testament multiple times. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God text. Every piece of the armor of God, by the way, is a reference to Jesus Christ, an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Six pieces of armor, five are Isaiah prophecies about Jesus. The other, um, the shield, shows up repeatedly in the book of Psalms, that God is our shield, that kind of language. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God doesn't get any more straightforward than that verse right there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then to show who holds such a sword, Revelation 2, verse 12, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, and then you get the words of Jesus Christ. So the sword is the word of God. The two-edged part is often discussed by Lutherans as being law and gospel. 
it is Christ. It is his word for us. So that fits back here into the prophecy of Isaiah 49, which would be that, again, Ephesians 6 piece of the armor of God coming from Isaiah. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is the word of God. Jesus speaks, just as in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the creation account, God speaks and stuff happens. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. In his quiver he hid me away. Both of these are a reference to God's protection, his care, his provision, that he, he cares for Jesus. So we can talk about how he protects Jesus from uh, the wickedness of Herod that sought to destroy him already. And so he takes him down to Egypt, and later says, out of Egypt I have called my son. But there's more to this as well. I mean, think of Revelation chapter 12, where the devil is waiting for the woman to give birth, waiting so that he can devour the child. Satan is already at the attack. He wants to destroy Jesus. It's a really fascinating picture. I've never seen anyone depicted in art, but to see a woman in labor and the devil just sitting there, mouth open, like a dragon, mouth open between her legs, waiting for the baby to arrive waiting to crush it between his teeth. And he fails. Because God saves him. God the Father rescues his son from the attacks of Satan and protects him. Helps him to grow in this world that he can carry out the task that's talked about later in the text. He has made me a polished arrow. That's, the again, growth, the preparation that Jesus grows in wisdom and stature. But why does one have an arrow? You don't keep an arrow in your quiver forever. If you did, it did no good. Eventually, that arrow is going to be fired. It's going to be sent out from that quiver. It's going to go and do what it was sent to do, to pierce the target, whatever that might be. Right For the hunter, he's hunting an animal to make food for his family. To the soldier, to pierce the enemy through. Psalm 127 verse 5 refers to our children as arrows in the quiver. Like this, we don't keep them forever. Eventually, we fire them away. We send our children off into the world having trained them, having polished them, having equipped them to do what God has created them to do, which is to share Christ, to love their neighbor. And so Jesus is hidden away. He's polished. He's growing in stature and wisdom. He's preparing to do what he's been sent to do, which is die on the cross to take away your sins and mine, to be a light to the nations that the salvation of God may reach even to the end of the earth. We'll come back to that. So verse 3, he, God the Father, said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Jesus, the Son, is God the Father's servant. Again, this is where we get that servant language, one of the servant songs. And God very specifically calls him Israel. 
My seminary professors, all those years ago, enjoyed talking about Jesus as Israel reduced to one. That is, that he came to fulfill, to do all the things that Israel ought to have done as the people of God and yet failed to do. That Jesus does all of those things, keeping the law perfectly. And then out of Jesus, as we think of the New Testament era, comes the church. That either testament, old or new, we are all one in Christ. Israel reduced to one. So I think if they have a Bible verse to support using that particular name, it would be here. You are my servant, Israel. That God calls his own son by that name. In whom I will be glorified. To glorify someone is to lift them up. The easy worldly picture of this is the athlete Uh, The the soccer player, for example, who kicks the game-winning goal and his teammates, all of a sudden, they rush him, they hoist him up on their shoulders, and they parade him around the field for all the fans to cheer. They have glorified him. They have lifted him up so that he can easily be seen by others. We are called, as Christians, to glorify God in all we do. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There are other verses like that. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to glorify the Father, to reconcile us to the Father. Before, without Christ, we either were rebelling against God in a direct, hateful opposition to God, or we were rebelling against God in a neglect, like we just didn't even imagine he was there, which you can see a lot of that in the world today. It's one and the same. Either way, we don't look to God, we don't glorify him, we don't honor him. Jesus has come to set that straight. Jesus has come to end that rebellion and to reconcile us to the Father that we would lift him up, that we would see him for all of his goodness, his faithfulness, that he keeps his promises. Verse 4 shows us that not all goes well in the ministry of this Messiah, this servant. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. There were certainly times where the work of Jesus seemed ineffective, like all he had done was for nothing. Imagine the time in John chapter 6 where after feeding one of those large groups of people, They're following him around, wanting him to just be their bread king. And he starts talking about how they must eat his body and drink his blood. And they all think he's nuts and they leave. And so he turns to his disciples and asks if they too want to leave. That's where Peter gives an amazing confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, which many of us sing in our liturgies today as we gather for worship in the Lord's house as a response to the gospel. Twelve from thousands. Jesus preached, he taught the truth, and people fled. They hated him for it. We might also look to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that Judas is bringing the band of soldiers, temple guards, to arrest him, 
when he's going to be beaten, flogged, a crown of thorns piercing his forehead. He's going to be led away to be crucified where the nails will pound through his flesh. He'll be hoisted up by that cross to be asphyxiated to death. He knows all that's coming, and he mourns in the garden. And as he does, he takes it to his father. That's the next part. Surely my right is with Yahweh. His strength spent, he leans on the Lord. He gives himself to the Father entirely. To the Father's will, to the Father's strength, to the Father's care. And God the Father raises him from the dead. Thanks be to God. The word recompense in verse 4 is one we might not use all that often in English, but we do use words related to it like compensation. Uh, Literally then, recompensation is kind of the way that you might take that word recompense. The Hebrew word behind it, uh, recompense can certainly be the word for translation, uh, reward, reward for faithful labor. Jesus isn't looking to the world to glorify him. Jesus isn't looking to those who crucified him thinking that they owe him. He knows that the Father loves him. He knows that the Father will raise him from the dead. He knows that all the good he could ever possibly want is with his Father and that he's going there. He's returning to his Father from whence he came and that the Father loves him. He has all that he could ever need. He is God and he will be with God for forevermore. So his reward, his recompense is with the Father. Verse 5, Yahweh speaks. We ultimately get what he says down in verse 6, so a lot of preface. Yahweh speaks, the one who formed the Messiah in the womb to be his servant. Jesus takes on flesh in the incarnation. So God the Father makes that body. Similar to, although not the same, but similar to how God the Father knits us together within our mother's womb that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, so he does with the body of Christ. Now it's different because there is no earthly father, right? It doesn't happen the normal way with uh, the semen and the egg and, and so forth. The Holy Spirit conceives Jesus within the womb of Mary. Jesus, who had already previously existed, and always has, takes on flesh. He comes down into that body. And he inhabits it even now. Again, because the Father has raised him from the dead. So, God formed him in the womb to be the servant, the Messiah, who would bring Jacob back. It's a reference to restoration. Jacob has wandered away. Jacob, Israel, The Israelites have wandered away from God, and they are being punished for it. Isaiah's prophecies speak of the destruction of God's people, but also the restoration of God's people. And so as they are taken into exile, Jesus will come to bring them back. And so we are exiles. Our home is not here. 
This is a broken place where we live in sin and give in to temptation. Jesus is coming to redeem and rescue even us today. But verse 5 and 6 begin with the idea that Jesus was going to bring back the remnant of God's people. He was going to redeem the chosen nation of Israel. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom alike. Jews as we would call them today. I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh. Transfiguration, baptism, both events where God speaks that this is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. God the Father looks lovingly upon his son. My God has become my strength. As we mentioned back in verse 4, with Jesus relying on the Father for all that he is and all that he has, in that garden of Gethsemane, trusting himself to the Lord's will. And then verse 6, finally, after all that introduction, Yahweh says, here he speaks, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Amen. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Too little a thing. Too light a thing. This is like when you get that man to to volunteer, or you as a, a person, you go and volunteer. Young man, strong, you've got the muscles to do a lot of hard work. And they ask you to do something simple, something light, to carry this thing. But, but that person over there, they could carry this. Give me something heavier. Give me more. This is the picture, the recognition of this verse, that for Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the suffering servant, for Jesus to only redeem the Jews would be too little a thing. He's stronger than that. He can do more than that. And indeed he will. The Lord makes him Savior to all peoples. When Jesus dies on the cross, he bears not just the sins of the Jews, not just the sins of the nation of God upon his shoulders. He bears every sin of every person, of every nation, of every tongue and language, every sin of all time. He bears upon his shoulders. That's a lot of sin. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And indeed it has. This is what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they do. Even by the time that the New Testament epistles are being written, the Apostle Paul confirms that this has actually already happened. In Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. 
and then again later in the chapter, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, that's Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, it's already happened. Jesus Christ, light of the world, John 8, verse 12, Jesus Christ, his gospel has reached the ends of the earth. Listen to me, O coastlands, give attention, you peoples from afar. The gospel message has been taken throughout the creation to every nation. And again, thanks be to God. I'm here because of it. You're here because of it. Because of him. Our Savior. So, verse 7, Thus says Yahweh, Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One. So more preface before Yahweh speaks at the end of the verse. He is the Redeemer. He buys back his people. He is the Holy One. Perfect, without fault, without sin. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, this would be the Messiah. Again, the suffering servant, the servant song, one deeply despised abhorred by the nation. Easy to think of the crucifixion, but it's also easy to think of our own day. How well is the name Jesus received among some of the people you know? Is Jesus' name honored at your work, at your school? Is it honored on the streets? Or is that name taken in vain? Is that name despised and hated? Is the culture fleeing from Christ and from his gifts? The answer to that is, unfortunately, yes, they are. They're running away. They despise, they hate his name. And we are called to continue to seek to share it with them. He is servant of rulers. He's servant of all people, indeed, including us, as he, again, lays down his life to take away our sins. Kings shall see and arise. So finally Yahweh speaks again after that delay, that introduction, I should say. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. This is true now, and it's true forever. Many would like to think of the Philippians 2 text, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. Yes, that's true. That is an end times picture that we will all bow before the king. But it's also true now. How many kings and princes in the history of this world have trusted in Jesus? Have bowed themselves before the true king? Even weak moments like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whether he actually ended up with a faith that endured or not, I don't know. But you can see in Daniel 4 his repentance and that he bows himself before God. It would be nice to see him in paradise someday if he ever repented of his polytheism. But how many great kings over the last 2,000 years have been Christian? There certainly have been some. Not all, but again, every knee will bow before the Father on the last day and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, kings shall see and arise, princes shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful. Because they have seen the work of Christ. 
we bow before our King because we know who he is. We know what he's done. We know of his love for us. We know of his faithfulness to us, that he keeps his promises. This is good news. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, by my reading, that's talking about the Father choosing the Son, just as we saw um, really at the start of the section as well, that he has called him from the womb to be his servant. He has chosen his servant. But we can take it, and we can also see it in relation to ourselves, as the kings and the princes who have gone before us could as well, that God has chosen us to be his people. It's a bit of a, a New Testament picture, right? We are adopted as sons. He has picked us. We could not save ourselves, but he has rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. It was too light a thing for Jesus to come and only rescue one nation. God the Father has made him the Savior of all nations. And again, to that we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Our epistle text this weekend is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So this is our first 1 Corinthians reading in year A, but we're going to have a consecutive streak of up to seven weeks, depending on how Epiphany falls. There are eight Sundays after Epiphany. Second through eight all have 1 Corinthians readings really every year. In year A, we focus on chapters 1 through 4, year B chapters 6 through 10, and year C, chapters 12 through 15. So it would end on the eighth Sunday after Epiphany in year A with chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians together for a little while yet. And as a little background, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth probably around the middle of the 50s. 55 is the date suggested by the Lutheran Sunday Bible. And it's a highly divided congregation. We'll pick that up as we read through, although you don't see it in today's reading. In our reading for this Sunday, the first part of chapter 1, you wouldn't know from this text that there's trouble brewing. Not just brewing. There's, there's trouble afoot. I mean, it's a mess. It's a divided mess. And Paul writes to this division, very much so. But you don't see it here. So what is Corinth? Corinth is a, one of the cities in Rome. It's in the region of Achaia, which is, if you're looking at a map, you see the Mediterranean Sea. One of the seas that juts off to the north is the Aegean Sea. Achaia is that area to the left, the west of the Aegean Sea. Although you would typically access Corinth from the other side, Further west, the Adriatic Sea, over by Italy, you would turn eastward into that, that smaller body of water that would lead you all the way to the end, and they would take you to the city of Corinth, which is a port city. It's the capital of Achaia, a very important ancient city, both in Greece and in Rome, although it's primarily just ruins at this point today. A lot of wealth in that city being a major port. So as we look at our text today, Let's do verses 1 through 3, the introduction first. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, also known as Saul, as a reminder here, those are both legitimate names for him. Paul is his Roman name. We know from his testimony in Scripture that he is a Roman citizen. Paul was named after, for his Roman name at least, uh, a famous Roman soldier, general I believe, who came from his home city of Tarsus. So his parents named him after that man, Paul. And also he's named Saul, that would be his Jewish name, that his parents named him after Israel's first king, King Saul in the Old Testament. So both names are legitimate, but as he goes and primarily becomes a, a servant of Christ to the Gentiles, he goes by his Gentile name rather than his Jewish name as he does his writings. He's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. Now, this is the road to Damascus account from Acts chapter 9, that Paul was going to Damascus in order to find Christians, members of the way, as they were called at first, arrest them and bring them for trial back to Jerusalem. He wanted to see them killed. And yet Jesus appears to him, blinds him on the road, revealing himself, the risen Christ, to Paul and calls Paul right then and there to be his servant to the nations. So Paul can truly say that he's called by the will of God. God did this, and that he's an apostle, a very limited term applied to only 16 men in Scripture, those typically who have seen the risen Christ and been sent by him. The only one that doesn't seem to fit that description is that Luke does actually, in his gospel account, call Judas Iscariot, an apostle. So this is from Paul. He's beginning the letter with his introduction with who he is so that the readers know the credibility of the letter and why they should be paying attention. And our brother Sosthenes. Our brother. This letter comes to Corinth from Paul and Sosthenes, and the people of Corinth know that they share Sosthenes with Paul that he is a fellow Christian, and he has been one of them. Acts chapter 18, Sosthenes was the synagogue ruler in the city of Corinth, and you see him beaten in that section of Acts. So it would appear at this point that he is with Paul rather than with the people in Corinth. And so now Paul and Sosthenes together write to the church in Corinth, to the brothers and sisters in Christ in that place, seeking to encourage them, also seeking to get them to repent of their division and to really come together in fellowship and love for one another. To the church in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified, made holy in Jesus. I'll just get this out of the way now. Again, heavily divided congregation. They are divided over who they should call their teacher. They're divided over matters of lawsuits and who, who should sue and one another and why. They're divided over a young man who's sleeping, having sex with his father's wife. They're divided over the Lord's Supper 
and how they should handle it together. They're divided over the role of women in the congregation. They're divided over all sorts of things. I mean, read the text, read the book. It's a mess. And yet, Paul says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, despite the mess. And this is one of those thanks be to God moments again. You and I are sanctified in Christ Jesus despite the mess. Thanks be to God. I'm not perfect. But that's not a criteria for salvation. In fact, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need salvation. Jesus Christ came to heal sinners. He came to heal us. And so notice the way Paul speaks so warmly of them to open the letter. Now, yes, you could talk about rhetoric. You could talk about how he's flattering them and buttering them up so that he can hit them hard. And he will. But that doesn't make these words not true. They are sanctified in Christ. He does, verse 4, give thanks for them. This is all true. And this is our hope. Because when we come before the judgment throne of God, he is going to see, and this is later verse 8 in the text, he's going to see his son. He's going to see Christ's perfection in us, not our own faults. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very common epistle greeting for Paul. Straightforward. Grace is the gift of God. Forgiveness, life, salvation, the gifts God has to give. And peace, that reconciliation that we are one with the Lord now, that we are no longer separated by our sin from him. This comes from the Father and from Jesus. So Paul's wishing that gift upon them. He's praying that for them. Our second paragraph, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, we wouldn't know there's trouble from this opening. Paul gives thanks to God for them. Now, Paul's not giving thanks to God because they're fighting, suing each other, doing all kinds of terrible things, withholding the Lord's Supper from the poor. Paul's giving thanks to God because of the grace of God, the gifts, his forgiveness, life, salvation, that was given them in Christ That even though they're messed up, even though they're sinning in many ways against one another and against the Lord, he gives thanks regularly for them because they are forgiven by Jesus. Because they are Jesus' people. And Paul knows it. In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, you have all that you need. When it comes to the gospel, you have all that you need. If you die today, you get to be in paradise with Christ. If the Lord gives you shelter and food and clothing for another day and you die tomorrow, you're with Christ. 
You have those worldly needs, but you also have, again, his forgiveness, his promises. You have everything that you could possibly need in this world and in this life and in the life to come. And the Corinthians have that. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That could be a reference to the eyewitness testimony being given. First Corinthians 15, we'll read this way. Paul's going to mention all the people that have seen the resurrected Christ. And basically the point of bringing it up is if they're doubting that Jesus rose from the dead, which some of them are. That's one of the divisions of the church in Corinth. That they can just go ask one of these brothers. There are 500, more than 500, who saw him at once. Most of them are still alive. Why would he say that? Go talk to them. Go ask them. Wherever something is attested to by two or three witnesses, among God's people, they are to take it as true. That's Old Testament law. But we could also talk about this testimony of Christ confirmed among them in their own testimony, in their own confession of faith. Just as we, we speak of our faith among our congregation today. And that as I share my faith or you share your faith, we're encouraging one another. The testimony about Christ, who he is, what he's done, was confirmed among us. The very fact that we have faith is that confirmation. You are not lacking in any gift. We already talked about that, and nor are we today. As we wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming again, just as he promised. Paul's going to talk about that. 1 Thessalonians 4 is a pretty well-known section for Paul to say it. The New Testament talks about it regularly. Jesus is coming again. And this is good news for us. In the meantime, he will sustain you to the end. Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He sustains us. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray each day in the Lord's Prayer. He sustains body and soul. He keeps us steadfast in the one true faith. John chapter 10, no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. We are his. And so he will then view us as guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. That second coming brings about the judgment day of God. We're not guiltless. But when we come before the judgment throne of God, that is precisely how he sees us. Because Jesus Christ took your sin away. He took my sin away upon the cross, upon himself. God is faithful. That's a beautiful little short phrase. Three words. But our entire faith hangs on those words. Doesn't it? What if God wasn't faithful? What if God had made a bunch of promises and he never carried through like we are so bad at doing? We would have no faith. We would have no hope. But God is faithful. He fulfills his promises. He's never broken them. 
Paul will go on later in the letter, especially chapter 15 in that regard as well. So God is faithful by whom you were called. Notice Paul is called, they are called, even the servant from Isaiah was called. We can be in this fellowship together. We can put our hope in these promises because the faithful God has called us. We haven't been called or or summoned by just some random coincidence or accident. We didn't receive a court summons. We've been called by the God himself who made us and who redeemed us. That matters. And we are called into the fellowship of his son. In Greek, this is the word koinonia. It's a partaking, a fellow common participation in something. Typically, the scripture is going to use that to talk about the Lord's Supper, which we will see in this letter in chapter 10 several times. We are called into the fellowship, the partaking of his son. We are in Christ. We are of Christ. He is ours. We are his. We are one with him, one body. And Paul's going to get into that idea as well in chapter 12. He gives himself to us, body and blood, in the bread and wine, for the forgiveness of our sins, leading to the salvation that never ends. Our last text for the day is from the Gospel reading of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42a. This divides into two paragraphs for us in ESV, and it follows up on John's initial teaching and testimony in the gospel account that started back in verse 19. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John has been out preaching, teaching, baptizing, and he goes out day after day. And so this appears, perhaps here in John's account, to be the follow-up of the baptism. I mean, by the way, he phrases it in verse 31 and such, such, he has come to learn post-Jesus' baptism about who Jesus is. Fully, truly. And so I don't, don't know that it would be wrong to say that he baptized Jesus the day before. Now he sees Jesus returning, and he preaches the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you John the Baptist is all law. Right? Yes, he came with a baptism of repentance, but here is gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's also something that we sing in our liturgy together. The Lamb of God, Agnus Dei is the name of that. Simply Latin for Lamb of God. 
He is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. In the Exodus account, they sacrificed a lamb at twilight, took the blood, painted it on the doorpost and on the lintel, that is the cross beam above, and in doing so, when the destroyer came that night, whether that was an angel or God himself, passed over the homes of God's people. The plague, the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn in every house of Egypt, passed over the homes of the faithful. The blood of the lamb rescued them. So does the blood of this lamb, Jesus Christ. He is our Passover lamb. His blood shed for us covers us so that the judgment of God passes over us, the judgment that we rightly deserve for our sin. We're not innocent. But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's taken it for us. He's taken it from us. So John goes on, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. It's quite a statement of faith from John. Because John is older than Jesus by about six months. But he's acknowledging he's not actually older than Jesus. That Jesus, he doesn't quite say it this way, but that Jesus is eternal. Sure, in the flesh, the physical thing that you see, John's the older. But Jesus has always been. John knows that Jesus outranks him, that he's far more important. And so he seeks to point people to Jesus. Verse 31 starts with John saying, I myself did not know him. Before the baptism? Would that mean John had never met Jesus outside the womb? Not sure we should go that route. Does it mean fully, truly? that he didn't understand who the Messiah was, who Jesus really would be until the baptism. That seems a little more likely. So John may not have known Jesus fully yet, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And in the baptism, that's what happens. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the baptism of Jesus, the heavens opening and God declaring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased and sending his spirit to rest upon him. John sees all of that. And so he's able to declare, I saw the spirit descend. He who sent me to baptize with water, be God the Father, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John sees the Holy Spirit rest on Jesus, and he knows that his mission has been fulfilled, that he has prepared the way for the Messiah to come, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, which we know to be a reference to our faith, that the Holy Spirit creates faith in us. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon us in the waters of baptism as the water is connected to the Word. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's testimony to all those who were there present that day to hear him, and not just that day, but any other day that he was preaching and teaching, 
Our second paragraph, 35 to 42a, we cut off a little short here. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. So another day, John's doing more ministry. He has his own disciples, that is, followers. A disciple is a learner, someone who learns from you. He has people who have been following him as he's been doing his ministry. And ultimately, what we see in this text is he kind of passes them off to Jesus. At least these two. So as he sees Jesus going by this second day, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, gospel proclamation right there, a little shorter than the day before, but pointing them to the perfect sacrifice, the one who takes away sin. And as these two men hear it, they turn off from John and they go and they follow Jesus. And they seek to know where he's staying. Perhaps they were wanting to stay with him. Perhaps they were going to seek to offer him hospitality. They called him rabbi, which means teacher. John very clear about that for us. So they view him as a teacher. It means they know something of him already. Maybe they've heard him teach some. And he invites them to come with him. <laughs> We're not told where it is, right? They came to the place where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, a lot of commentaries will suggest that this tenth hour is just 10 a.m., that unlike most of the times in Scripture that you read, which are based on starting the clock at 6 a.m., so the, the tenth hour then, in that case, would have been four in the afternoon, that John seems to use the Roman clock in a way, so do we, and so counting for midnight, counting forward. So it's morning yet is the picture that we are, we're given to, to think of here. And so they stay with him for the rest of the day. They spend that day with him. One of them being, as we learn in verse 40, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And so what does Andrew do? He runs off to his brother and he says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John again telling us that. Now, Messiah and Christ are actually the same word. Messiah is the Hebrew word, and Christ is the Greek word, Mashiach, Christos. They both mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. In the history of God's people, they would typically anoint three people. They would anoint their king. Jesus is our king. They would anoint their prophet. Jesus is our prophet. And they would anoint their priest. Jesus is our priest. So a king is to care for the people. Jesus cares for us. A prophet is to speak God's word to the people. Jesus speaks God's word to us. And a priest is the one who makes sacrifices for and intercedes to God for the people. And Jesus made the sacrifice of his own flesh, his own body and blood for us. And he stands before God, between God and man, and intercedes for us. So Jesus is our anointed one the anointed one of God who has come to redeem us. 
And so Andrew brings his brother to come and see Jesus. I suppose a pastor preaching this weekend could make that into an evangelism text about how Andrew went and told somebody about Jesus and brought him to see him. We can go and do likewise. We can bring the people we know to come and see Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that. Certainly invite your your neighbors to come to church and and hear the good news. And even just as you entertain in your own home and, and visit with your neighbors in the community around you, we can bring this good news right out to them. I mean, John's not at his house baptizing. He went out to the Jordan. He went out to the the community, and he did it there. So we can see that, too, in this text. But ultimately, the big picture here in John 1, just as it was with the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The point of this is John's testimony that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who has taken away the sins of the world. It is the testimony about Jesus Christ, which, as we saw in the Corinthians reading, has been confirmed among you. And that's true also of us. This testimony has been confirmed. We have faith. We believe these words to be true. 